Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host, Chris Caraggio. Hi, folks. Welcome to another edition of ACHE's Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Caraggio. Today's episode is brought to you by Covaris. Covaris is reinventing what you expect from a medical professional liability provider. By leveraging claims, data, and analytics, Covaris is helping doctors and administrators reduce distractions and focus on improving outcomes. Learn more at covaris.com focus. Our guest today is Patricia McGaffigan. I'm going to read a little bit about Patricia, then we're going to welcome her in and have our nice conversation. Patricia is the Vice President of Safety Programs and President of the Certification Board for Professionals in Patient Safety at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She served as COO and Senior VP of Programs at the National Patient Safety Foundation until 2017, when the foundation merged with IHI. Now, her prior experience includes clinical practice, academia, and leadership roles in education and marketing positions for several startup and established medical device companies focused on improving patient safety. Patricia is a certified professional in patient safety, a graduate of AHA NPSF Patient Safety Leadership Fellowship Program, and serves on several national committees related to safety, including the Joint Commission National Patient Safety Committee and the Advisory Committee of the Coalition to Improve Diagnosis. Now, Patricia is a member of Atrius's Health Systems of Care Performance Committee and is a board member of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Prevention of Medical Errors. A recipient of the Lifetime Member Award from the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, Patricia received her BS in nursing from Boston College and her MS in nursing from Boston University. Patricia, Thank you so much for joining the Healthcare Executive. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be with you today. Great. Well, you have such a bio, and um, we, we got through all that. Hopefully, I read that correctly. And, and because of everything that's in your bio, you were the perfect guest for, for this episode. Before we kind of jump in to this episode, can you just give, give our listeners a, a little bit more about the mission and the work of IHI? Sure, Chris. Um, IHI is an independent not-for-profit organization with a mission that's focused on improving health and healthcare worldwide. And for over 25 years, we've been energized around our skills and our track record in bringing improvement science to advance and sustain better outcomes for health and for healthcare systems. We uh, spend an enormous amount of time on uh, foundational uh, application of improvement science in our work. Many of you may be familiar with also the campaigns that we have, like the 100,000 Lives campaign and the 5 million lives, as well as the concept of the triple aim, which is our framework for optimizing health system performance by focusing on three areas that include the health of the population, the experience of care for individuals within that population, and the per capita cost of providing care. I know a lot of people are familiar with our Open School, which is an innovative global network of hundreds of thousands of learners around the world who are committed to improving health and healthcare. 
And then on a final note, Chris, as you mentioned, uh, we recently merged uh, with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, three years ago, and I wanted to acknowledge a couple of the key programs from the National Patient Safety Program that continue to be foundational to driving our work at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and that includes our think tank, the Lucian Leap Institute, which I describe as our true north for transforming safety, and I know that ACHE is very focused on the true north, as well as our certified professional and patient safety credential, which has been earned by thousands of leaders in healthcare, including safety professionals and a growing cohort of healthcare leaders. You know, with all that, Patricia, uh, and that's so impressive because obviously safety is paramount. Uh, that, that, that is it. That, that is the, the beginning of the sentence and the end of the sentence. No question about that. But with, with IHI, and I know um, uh, members of ACHE and also um, listeners, longtime listeners of, of this podcast will, will, will remember a collaboration back in 2017 uh, let me get this right, uh, leading a culture of safety, a blueprint for success. Very similar to everything you just spoke about. Um, this document, though, is a guide for CEOs uh, to help move their hospitals and their health systems towards zero harm. Can you talk a little bit about zero harm and where we are in the healthcare space regarding that? Happy to do so, Chris. Um, and by the way, I think the blueprint is actually one of the most important pieces of work that we have done in our history. And ACG has done a great job of disseminating and sparking action around the blueprint. So what's getting in the way of this concept of zero harm? I'd like to just comment on a couple of areas. Uh, first, what we know about our work and the work of many others in safety is that workforce safety, which is both physical and certainly psychological in nature, has been described as preconditional or co-conditional for patient safety. But as so many of our surveys continue to tell us when we look at patient safety culture, uh, we continue to hear that folks are not universally comfortable in speaking up about concerns, and they're not comfortable in speaking up and identifying when things go wrong. So this continues to be one of the most poorly performing metrics on the domains of our culture surveys to date. And as folks like Lucian Leap have so often said, we continue to punish people, uh, specifically individuals, for making mistakes, even though we've learned that the errors are resulting very commonly from poorly designed systems and not because of individual intent. So when people do feel safe speaking up, we see lower rates of harm to patients in our workforce, and we can encourage and, and foster more proactive identification of small and frequent conditions that contribute to this harm. Uh, we often now in recent days talk about this element of psychological PPE that's very real, pandemic or not. Another reason why I think we're seeing progress or lack of progress in safety is that we have a habit so often of doing to people versus doing with people. And I would say it's true in too many cases for both patients and families as well as our healthcare workforce. We don't really have universal atmospheres and practices of co-creating and co-designing care with patients and families and maximizing our investments in care coordination, which leaves us life for consequences on that front. And very commonly, we're so stuck in what I often refer to as go fever, a term that's actually was coined by NASA, 
that we're forgetting and not having time to really focus in on what truly matters to patients and to our colleagues. Another great example of doing this from the workforce perspective is that we actually sometimes will tell people to do things as we saw up in Canada, where the nation was pretty much told to implement a surgical safety checklist more so from a top-down perspective versus building the will and the engagement and the agency of those who are at the front lines of care. And we know that tools alone don't get the job done. Uh, so again, some of the reliance that we've had on improving safety has been very focused on those slices of tools versus really understanding the broad system. And speaking of systems, a third and final example, Chris, of what gets in the way is that we often don't take the time to deeply understand why things are not going well, as well as why they do go well. And we don't always consistently communicate and close the loop and share within and beyond our organizations as we would in organizations that are truly committed to being a learning system. There's actually some interesting debate that exists out there about whether we should compete or collaborate on safety. And I personally embrace the latter. I know I wouldn't want anyone that I love to be harmed as a result of receiving or providing care because we obstructed this notion of free trade and safety, which I believe is everyone's moral right and healthcare is moral accountability. Um, just curious, going back to something you said a, a couple of moments ago, are you confident, Patricia, personally, that more folks will feel safe to, to come forth with issues that they see so those problems can be addressed and have the awareness that they are there? So like you said, that's, that's the first step. And then fixing the actual problems, getting closer to zero harm is the second step. But you feel that folks are getting more confident, feeling safer to come, come, come forward? I think we're seeing progress, Chris. I'd like it to be faster. I'd like it to be more widespread and scaling. And I think this is one of the reasons why that work that we did together uh, with IHI and the American College of Healthcare Executives on that blueprint for leading a culture of safety is so important because it is really at the heart and soul of ensuring that we're creating environments where people do feel safe. But yes, I do believe the two are directly related. Thanks, Patricia. Just a reminder, today's episode is brought to you by Coveris. Coveris is reinventing what you expect from a medical professional liability provider. By leveraging claims, data, and analytics, Coveris is helping doctors and administrators reduce distractions and focus on improving outcomes. Learn more at coveris.com focus. Let's talk now, Patricia, about the, the National Safety Action Plan. Talk a little bit more about that because Earlier this month, IHI, ACHE, and, and uh, 25 other leading safety organizations, federal agencies, patient advocacy groups, everybody came together to launch this new initiative. So the plan, and again, I want to get this correct, provides the best practices and strategies to give renewed momentum, which is important, renewed momentum and clear direction for eliminating preventable medical harm. How, how is this going? And, and, and will these goals be met, Patricia? 
Sure. So just a little bit of background on that to start, Chris. So 15 years after the publication of Tuera's Human, uh, we were at the time the National Patient Safety Foundation. Uh, we decided to convene an expert panel to discuss whether or not we had truly made any progress in safety over that 15-year period. So we wanted to understand what our baseline state was 15 years later. We also wanted to understand where and how we might be succeeding and why we might be stalling. And we also wanted to ensure that we could shape recommendations for what we needed to do to really accelerate that improvement. And the resulting report, which is called Free from Harm, Accelerating Patient Safety Improvement 15 Years After Two Eras Human, shares the conclusion of our expert panel that while we indeed had made pockets of progress, typically around circumscribed areas such as hospital-acquired conditions, this progress was by no means acceptable. We're still harming, um, preventatively speaking, hundreds of thousands of patients per year um, based on some of the estimates that exist. So this report reinforced that we had a whole lot more to do on addressing safety, and we looked at why we weren't making that progress and really determined that we had been kind of carving out, very importantly, by the way, circumscribed areas, um, as I mentioned earlier, some of those healthcare conditions that I talked about. We reinforced overall that we had a lot more work to do on understanding and treating safety as a system property instead of, for example, putting Band-Aids on bleeding arteries without stopping the bleeding in the first place and understanding the causes of that bleeding. That report also really instilled in us even more convincing um, argument that we had to meaningfully coordinate and collaborate on eliminating preventable healthcare harm because so much of the work was being done in silos. So among the recommendations, by the way, was one, to ensure that leaders establish and sustain a safety culture. And that actually is what ultimately led us to this collaboration with ACHE on that blueprint. We also followed up that report with a call to action, which is a heavily endorsed statement that proclaimed that preventable healthcare harm is a public health crisis and required a coordinated public health response. Now, this came out prior to the 2017 merger with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and it really became the focal inspiration for renewing the momentum, momentum that you just mentioned, Chris. And really drove us to support the convening of a National Steering Committee for Patient Safety. That National Steering Committee, or NSC as we often call it, was charted with the creation, the dissemination, and the monitoring of a national action plan for patient safety. And that's what's really unique about this plan. 27 members that represent federal agencies, national associations, including the American College of Healthcare Executives, healthcare delivery organizations, and very well-known patient and family advocates and leaders came together to co-create this plan. So we had the spirit and the energy of organizations creating a plan for safety as a whole, as a group, and that energy, which is so robust from day one, actually accelerated as we entered into the pandemic. We were moving our work from independent work uh, where we had commonly held beliefs to converging into 
a commonly held action plan or plan for action in the creation of this report. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you next, because it's so important that we have this National Safety Action Plan, because, again, we find ourselves in the middle of this pandemic. Um, can you talk a little bit about, because everything has changed, obviously, because of COVID-19 in the healthcare space, when you're talking about patient safety, when you're talking about uh, staff safety, frontline worker safety, everything from A to Z. How is this plan being used to address the problems we're facing in the pandemic? We were well into the creation of the National Action Plan, nearly complete, to be honest, when the pandemic hit. We originally planned to release the National Action Plan in May, a couple of months after the pandemic became very real for us. And understandably, the members of the National Steering Committee were all being pulled and being fully immersed in their own pandemic priorities, regardless of whether they were federal agencies or associations or healthcare delivery organizations. But at this same time, one of the things that I think was so important about the uh, work of the National Steering Committee and emblematic of the passion that we all brought to the table was that the members agreed that if we thought safety was a problem and an opportunity to be addressed before the pandemic, it was an even bigger opportunity with the pandemic. And the work of the National Action Plan was deemed to be ever more relevant. Now, the work the, of the plan itself is designed to be evergreen, but the committee felt that we needed the plan more than ever. And so the National Steering Committee members committed to reviewing what we had created and pressure testing the work to determine whether it would still hold up in the midst of a pandemic and under one of the most stressful circumstances that the healthcare industry could find ourselves in. We started by looking at the principles that the National Steering Committee members had agreed to at the formation of the National Steering Committee itself and agreed that they were on track, especially with with our commitment to equity, which we all know has become even more apparent as an area that needs incredible focus um, in healthcare. We also asked ourselves, what's in the plan that remains solidly on track with respect to what we're learning on a day-to-day -day basis with the pandemic? And based on what we're experiencing and learning, is there anything that's missing from the plan that needs to be shored up or corrected? Now, given that the plan itself wasn't getting into the weeds on um, you know, prescribed clinical practices and was instead focused on four transformational areas that we felt were essential for advancing patient safety. And by the way, those four areas included culture, leadership, and governance, one. Uh, secondly, patient and family engagement. Third, learning systems. And fourth, workforce safety. So the recommendations are centered around those four areas, and we agreed that the foundational areas remain solidly relevant. The 17 recommendations in the plan themselves were also evaluated, and they remain untouched and were again deemed to be even more important in the face of the pandemic. Now, throughout the National Action Plan, the accompanying organizational assessment tool 
in the implementation resource guide, we did add in some COVID learnings uh, into those tools that comprise the National Action Plan proper. And one example that I think will resonate with this audience is, um, with the audience is with respect to workforce safety, where we call upon all leaders, for example, to ensure that conventional contingency and crisis standards of care and practices related to workforce safety are developed and ready for potential deployment across the continuum of care. Uh, so much of what we had in those standards had been focused in on what patients might need and what our, um, you know, our com the communities we serve might need. And this was really emphasizing the importance of thinking about the workforce and the work environment. We also thought really carefully about what it might mean to release a national action plan in the midst of a pandemic, Chris, because we also didn't want people to think the plan was only relevant because of the pandemic. So it's really vital for us when we speak about the National Action Plan to make the connection and the relevance to COVID and communicate how the pandemic has reinforced the urgent need for us to have greater collaboration and focus on foundational change to reduce medical, uh, preventable medical errors. So Patricia laid it all out there for you folks about, about the National Safety Action Plan, the blueprint for success. But if you'd like to sort of uh, review it, uh, you can always go to ache.org slash safer together. Again, to learn more about the plan and the blueprint for success. One more question, Patricia. Um, in your arena, uh, in, in the healthcare space, um, what institutions are doing a great job when we're talking about culture of safety and, and, and even more so, what, what types of leadership uh, programs are they using to pull this off? So, Chris, actually, some of the organizations that I would say are really at the top of their game in terms of leading with cultures of safety are some of the organizations that were very instrumental in helping us shape that blueprint that we've talked about earlier today. They include organizations like Memorial Hermann and Virginia Mason and Mainline Health. Uh, Dr. Jerry Hickson and his team at Vanderbilt have done a great job on professional accountability programs, which is so important for a culture of safety, and then organizations like the Solutions of Patient Safety for Patient Safety Network, which engages over, I think, 140 pediatric hospitals around the country, uh, which come together in a collaboration to eliminate harm. They're just a shining example of a group that's focused not only on culture, but on the other aspects of the National Action Plan itself. So some of the commonalities that these organizations, I think, have that I'd like to just call out are, first of all, their unwavering leadership commitment, first and foremost, to embracing and fostering safety as a core value and seeing that as their purpose. They also recognize that not only is it a purpose, but it's essential to take that total systems approach to safety that we talked about. They embrace transparency within and across organizations and with the public. And they hold themselves accountable and acknowledge when things have go wrong. They're not covering it on up, but ensuring that they're able to communicate 
that as a reality of their organizations and work on shared learning and really engaging not only their um, healthcare workforce, but patients and families to be able to identify how to continue to get better. These are leaders that are not just satisfied that they've got a good culture. They're saying every single day, there's more and more that we can do. And one of the lessons that I've really learned as I've spoken about culture and many of my travels, Chris, is um, this, the sheer um, simplicity of how we can even think about this on an individual basis. And I think this is something that I'd like to encourage leaders to think about sharing amongst their own teams as well. At the end of every week, usually on a Friday, and that can be a hard day to do this admittedly, I try to sit back and say, what did I do this week where I was a culture carrier? Or what did I do this week where I was a culture barrier? And quite frankly, there's usually something in both columns at the end of every week. And I try to use that as a personal guidepost for what it is that I can be doing and bringing to my tomorrow when I come to work. Um, one of the things that I've learned from evaluations of sessions that I've done is that people have said that's one of the most valuable things that they've taken away is that simple practice of saying, what is it that I can be doing and thinking about on an ongoing basis that can really be bringing out the best in me and the best in the organization that I work within. And finally, what I would say about these leaders and these organizations that are really exemplars with respect to a culture of safety, Chris, is that they embody the commitment of not getting good at 100 things or even 10 things but they get really good at continually improving and fostering and applying the spirit and the science of improvement to their everyday work. That continued awareness, I think, is what you're talking about in that everyday work. Like you said, um, carrier barrier, it's got a great ring to it. And hopefully that simple, that simple message will resonate with our, with our listeners. You, uh, you expanded upon it beautifully during this podcast. We appreciate your time speaking on this topic. Thank you, Chris. And everyone, I'd like you once again um, to, uh, to join us for this very important topic on today's episode uh, on the Healthcare Executive Podcast. But we also encourage you to visit, like I said before, the ACHE.org slash Safer Together website. You can download the new National Safety Action Plan, including the self-assessment and all the other tools. Patricia, once again, thank you so much. We appreciate your time, your insight, your information. Thank you. You got it. Today's episode is brought to you by Coveris. Coveris is reinventing what you expect from a medical professional liability provider. By leveraging claims, data, and analytics, Coveris is helping doctors and administrators reduce distractions and focus on improving outcomes. Learn more at coveris.com focus. Folks, we'll see you next time on the Healthcare Executive Podcast. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ACHE.org.